This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Welcome in to episode 220 of Film Tank. I know, getting into big numbers. Oh boy. We have been for a long time, but yeah. there you go. Yeah. On this episode, uh, we are talking about The Fugitive. The, oh, who? <laughs> the 1993 film uh, that stars Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones uh, that most people remember for very silly reasons, uh, but is, in my opinion, actually a very good, fun 90s flick. So we will talk about that shortly. Um, but first, myself, Alex Diekman, and today, my one co-host, Nick Cheney. Hello. Hey, buddy. Uh, are just going to spend a few minutes chatting about uh, a trip we had to the cinema over the last weekend when uh, our other film tank host, Tucson Egan, who's uh, not been in the last couple episodes and is not taking a break necessarily, um, but he's... had a busy schedule. I was going to say, he's got a lot going on with what he's doing for work, what he's doing in terms of his journalism, and yep. also what he's doing for school. But we were able to steal him for a moment. I know. So we spent a weekend just going to hang out with him and uh, catch up with him and catch a couple movies and just have some laughs, and it was a good good time. So uh, go to a restaurant, enjoy some nice beer. So always fun. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was a good time. So we went to the theater, and this is still a really weird time of year in mid-February where you can't really just go to the theater and be like, I want to see two good movies. Yeah. What two movies can you show me? It's like, oh boy. Well, especially because the good movies that are out are all the Best Picture nominees, and if, you, if you're like people like you and me, mm. you've already seen them. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, like we've already seen Parasite and... 1917 right. whatever i mean so. knives out is still out isn't yeah. it? so it's not like we were like skipping good movies but we wanted to see new movies yes and we uh, paid the price oh well it's literal and figurative so we went to go see sonic the hedgehog and also the new dc harley quinn movie birds of prey uh, and whatever that secondary title is that apparently was canceled in favor of Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. So they they're, they have clearly know what's going on over there at DC right now. It's going great. Mm-hmm. And just to recap, I feel like our feelings on them, and I guess maybe this is like a bad way to look at it, but I feel like the early January, February films that I've seen so far, and I've only seen three in the theater so far this year, including these two. I feel like I am optimistic for the rest of the year because I feel like 
these films when they come out are usually like this is the crap that got filled into the early part of the year that is just a placeholder in the theater because we don't have nonstop content. So here is the shit. And I feel like every movie I've seen so far this year, I've given the same rating to, and I haven't thought any of them were that bad. No, I'd agree overall that, mm-hmm. uh, cause I've seen all three that you've seen plus Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really been bowled over by any of them. Mm-hmm. And yet even at their worst, which we might talk about, um, I was pleasantly surprised that it was not as like a chore. Like I thought it would be. So, yep. so ultimately, uh, I was won over by Sonic the Hedgehog. It's not a great movie in the slightest, but I will say there is something to be said for sure about being entertained in the theater. And I feel like Sonic the Hedgehog accomplished that and did it also too, definitely for kids and for adults. And even though it's not like a fun Toy Story way of entertaining where it's like actually feels like that, this is has parts that are so stupid that they were hilarious and I feel like in the start of the film, I was not feeling it. And by the end of it, I was like totally sold on what that film was doing, even if it's not good, because I feel like I think that it's a bad movie that I enjoyed. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you this much, which is that it, it is not good. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I also found some of the jokes to be very funny. Mm-hmm. And it was a weird, delicate I don't know, you know, tiptoe, uh, whatever that it line that it balanced because at its worst and at its best, it was only a few degrees removed. It's just that it had what made it work throughout was that it had this ridiculous manic energy that really did, uh, didn't commit the cardinal sin, which is to be boring. And, um, I will say that I was never bored. I was, uh, annoyed or you know <laughs> whatever by certain things and then i was pleasantly surprised and or um amused by others but um i like i literally don't endorse it <laughs> but i will say um with uh some liberations uh so to speak uh it's a good time i would agree and i said this to you both you and duzan as we were leaving the theater i feel like if you were inebriated in one way or the other, you could have a lot of fun with that movie. Yeah. For sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, As I was. (laughs) And And I did. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I felt like the first 30 minutes, I was just not really feeling what that movie was doing. I especially was really not caring for Jim Carrey's performance (laughs) at all. And then as the film wore on, I really was just picking up what he was laying down. And mm-hmm. it was not in a, like, like looking back on, like, what I consider to be, like, the benchmark Jim Carrey performance, which is, like, either, like, Ace Ventura or uh, Liar Liar or Dumb and Dumber or something yeah. like that, where, like, even if those aren't necessarily good movies. Oh, some are. Yeah. But... Those are what people think of when they think of Jim Carrey. Like, they don't yeah. think of the number 23 and whatever. Like, either people think of him in his later days having occasional hits where he's doing good work like Man on the Moon or Eternal Sunshine or something like that. He's good in all those. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, that's not the marquee Jim Carrey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, 
I feel like he's just doing this horrible portrayal in this movie and it is really bad. But at the same time, like the more it wore on, the more I was just giggling every time he was talking. Oh, absolutely. I, he was definitely my favorite part of this movie. (laughs) Um, it made me feel like I was a kid watching a Jim Carrey performance Mm -hmm. back then. Um, which is not to say it's as good as those, but, um, it was the first time he found the right vehicle for that in quite a long time. And, yeah, there were some lines here that were interesting. The <laughs> the line in which he Jim Carrey and James Marsden character are arguing uh, at his doorstep and he's makes some kind of joke about formula versus breastfeeding. And then James or he says formula and then James Marsden says, "Well, I was breastfed as a kid." And then Jim Carrey's uh, stunning portrayal of Dr. Robotnik uh, has the random line of like, oh, throw that in my orphan face, why don't you? <laughs> Which is such a weirdly aggressively kinky line for a children's <laughs> film that a grown man is literally uh, lamenting the lack of breastfeeding in his Freudian childhood. Is uh, that, that That took me... Uh, for a for a little ride, um, but there were other moments like that where it was just out of left field. Like as as weird and as larger than life he was playing it, there were still moments when I was like, "Oh, okay, we're doing this now." Whereas I felt like the Jim Carrey of the past, uh, after that '90s era, mm-hmm. but when he was like phoning it in, like nothing surprised me. <laughs> you know, like it was just going through the motion. Oh, yeah. Whereas here, I was like, "Okay, now we're doing a dance number." Like, uh, you know, and whatever else happened. And so, anyway, that part was very enjoyable. I would agree. I felt like this is a weird movie where the filmmakers took the criticism after the initial trailer and literally went back and reanimated the character through the entirety of the film, which was interesting because there were different reports about the cost of this. And then the studio took this really weird angle where they just, they tried to discount how difficult it was. They were like, Oh yeah, that was actually pretty easy. And I don't know, to me, that was a real head scratchy moment because I feel like one of the biggest criticisms about animation is always that people think that like you just put it in a computer and it's done. Yeah. Which I think anyone who actually knows what goes into making films knows. Or that, that it doesn't cost money. Right. But, I mean, that's the big thing. And, and it's this, like, well, if you have the program, you're not spending money on the program. Like, no, that's not how it works. And I feel like the weird thing about it is that like no one that I noticed really bad in an eye, but that like really raised my eyebrows when I read that comment. Cause I feel like if I was the animation studio, I'd be like, wait a minute. Oh, and a lot of them have spoken out. Uh, yeah. at least the, the laborers, you mm-hmm. know, at the studio. Um, but yeah, no, I think they made all the right decisions in that department. Yeah. And, and the story is really simple and it's, you know, has really, you know, kind of bland life lessons. Uh, and, there are parts of it that I feel like in 10 years you'll watch and you'll be like, oh my, why did they decide to tie up a black woman? Uh, but at the same time, there are other parts of it that I thought were very enjoyable. And uh, I was I was a fan, I will say. I, did I was not, think not I was overall, going, I know. but I was a fan of the experience. Yeah, well. So anyway, at any rate, I gave that film the same rating as the second film we saw. And in my rankings for the year, 
ranked Sonic higher, which Nick thought was absolute blasphemy, which he's probably right about. But at the same time, that's just my personal opinion. Oh, and so, it's wrong, but yeah, that's fine. Good. Thanks. That's that's such a... Oh, that's great. So, Birds of Prey uh, was the later showing that we saw. I mean, it wasn't like super late. It wasn't like years ago when we went to go see... Um, L and then right yeah L. Paul Verhoeven's L yeah and then we went to dinner Which and then we, we yeah and then we went to like the ten o'clock showing of Martin Scorsese's two hour and forty five minute uh, silence silence uh, which is a very long film yeah a movie I loved mm-hmm. but also wow that was uh, <laughs> I mean ten o'clock on the verge of you know like on the weekend we all have jobs and whatnot mm-hmm. so to go see a movie like that at ten o'clock is not great. Mm-hmm. Definitely should have flipped those two. Yeah, well, that's okay. But you know what? So we live can only live once. There you go. So we can only die once, or no, no time to die. Ooh, yeah. That's coming. I up. listened to that song, by the way. How was it? Not impressed. Okay. Didn't hate it. the The one thing that was missing is that there was no crescendo. It is a very static, mumbly. Like I don't have anything against. Billy Eilish because I don't listen to her music so I like I'm not gonna be like oh I don't like her mm-hmm. I don't like but like listening to that song uh, I was like waiting for it to do the big chorus and it never does and it just mm-hmm. goes throughout and it wasn't bad I'm hoping the visuals kind of enliven it we'll see sometimes that does make it I think this for me. this Bond era has pretty much hit the jackpot on songs yeah because the Chris Cornell song for Casino Royale is very good I love all the songs in uh, Daniel Craig's era. Yeah. Adele's is the most well-known yeah. from Skyfall. And then... But I'm I, a fan of the Alicia Keys uh, yeah. and Jack White uh, for Quantum of Solace. And uh, Sam Smith's song won, won the Oscar. that one as well. I think it was... I think it won the Oscar released. It, it was, did, yeah. It did. Well, it was nominated. I don't know if it... I think it was because I remember I, him going up there. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it did win. And I remember, even though I don't love him as a performer, I thought that song was very good. I agree. Now, for right now, Billy Eilish is my least favorite of the era. Five out of five. <laughs> it's the star, too. Yeah. But uh, but I'm curious to see how it works with the visuals. Because I actually listened to Sam um, Smith. Smith's song before I saw the movie, and I didn't dislike it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely liked it, like more the moment I saw the opening credit sequence. Just sometimes it takes like a visual thing for me to actually lock like not because now I only like it when I watch it in the visual, but then like afterwards I just started listening to it on repeat because I liked it that much. So, Good. Anyway. So Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Birds of Hey <laughs> is I think exactly what it sold uh in its very limited advertisements. It was a pretty wacky Harley Quinn-driven film that I've had a hard time thinking about this because I agree with a lot of the criticisms of the film that it really does not revolve around the other characters in the Birds of Prey until the very end. But I feel like their stories are interwove enough throughout the rest of the film that it's not awful. Yeah. So, uh... I thought this was quite enjoyable, to be honest with you. Like, I didn't think it was great. It's not DC's best work. It's certainly not their worst. Uh, and for a hour and 50-minute film, I thought it was fun. I had a good time. 
Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. honestly. I think I probably like it the most out of us, the free, based probably. on our yeah. like impressions yeah. and whatnot. And it's in no way, like you said, their best. Um, but this is another step in the right direction. Like, I just want to keep seeing DC do this, like go in this and kind of branch out in, in varying ways instead of only one way. And I think this is another evolution of that. And I, I'm one of those people who criticizes it uh, for the fact that I feel like the birds of prey themselves are kind of shoehorned, not mm-hmm. so much that they're underwritten, but this there's a lot of mental gymnastics to get Harley Quinn teaming up with who the birds of prey are. Um, and I think this movie mostly succeeds, but it's also still kind of a little mismatched. Having said that, though, I thought it was just a really good romp, if I can say that. Uh, I absolutely loved Ewan McGregor's turn as oh, Black Mask. Dude, okay, I said this to you in the middle of the film, yeah. the theater. I was like, I feel kind of bad because, like, and I, I didn't feel this way, but it would be like someone watching the female Ghostbusters and be like, Chris Hemsworth's the best part of this. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't like my all-time favorite part of the movie, mm-hmm. but man, did I love the fact that he was totally game for for the movie. But that's what, I, that's what I was saying, that I felt bad because I liked Ewan McGregor so much. And some of the other characters I thought were good, but I was like, meh. I will admit that I think Harley Quinn herself just edges him out. Mostly because of the fact that she's coming off of something like Suicide Squad, where while Margot Robbie was good as Harley Quinn in there, she was saddled with just some that story. Yeah, that iteration of Harley Quinn. And I actually think that this like was a fantastic performance from her because of the fact that she doesn't disregard the way she played it, you know, back in the previous installment, and yet she completely makes room for the nuance that this film actually allows. I was actually pleasantly surprised that this film included story beats from Suicide Squad. Like, a lot of people would look at the early DC like Suicide Squad, like Man of Steel, and completely discount it and try to write it off. Yeah. And this is like has like actual like just using stock footage from that yeah, yeah, film yeah. in this one. I, I actually uh, loved it for that reason in two ways, which is that A, I love that they both did that and mm-hmm. as far as acknowledged its history mm-hmm. and yet also didn't actually use Jared Leto's face. Yeah. Like it was almost like this weird slap in the face of like like mentally blocking out the worst aspect of that movie while also acknowledging that it that, was there. Yeah, that it was there yeah. and that that's essentially what she's moving on from. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh and then there were a couple other small things like the Captain Boomerang thing at the which is fine. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh so a couple things just to mention that I really liked um, I thought this is really random and didn't really mean much, but I thought the opening animation was actually quite enjoyable because yeah. it was really silly and fun. But at the same time, I thought it like it was a good tone setter for what this movie was going to be. Yep. And at the same time, I thought the violence in this movie was pretty much perfect for what a yeah. like anti-hero film wants to be. Yep. Like this was Deadpool, but it wasn't, like carrying it on for an extra two to three beats. It was just like showing someone jump and breaking his leg, but then we move on from that. I agree. I actually thought that all the people who were calling this Deadpool 
are not necessarily being disingenuous, but are also missing the point that it's almost doing a disservice to call it that and then give no caveats as to what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that in the sense that the ultra-violence here was extremely kinetic and fun to watch, and yet, unlike Deadpool, it didn't think that the joke was the violence in and of itself. Like, I thought that there was an actual story heart and humor that existed outside of that violence and the violence was more of a means to an end to keep going and and add to the tone and it really did play into the story i mean i think some of it does in deadpool and that's all discussion for a different day but like i was saying like that is like violence happens and then it like is like the punchline is the violence where this is like one of the most awesome parts actually happens pretty early on when she jumps off the top of a table and lands on a guy's legs and yeah. breaks them and cracks them yeah. backwards. I mean, that is just what a visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like we see all of her enemies that are made later and this guy comes wheeling up in a wheelchair and it just like, it's a good punch. I love that. that reoccurring gag of everybody that had grievances and then for him to <laughs> resurface because yeah. of that. I mean, it's weird because in not exactly like one to one, that this works but she almost and i was actually getting this vibe throughout the film uh, and i didn't mention but i was getting this like really weird john wick wick vibe from her character oh well and you do know that behind the scenes uh the stunt coordinator was hired uh, oh, really? halfway through production they need they were thinking that some of the action scenes weren't working and they hired i think chad whatever his name is okay Stoneski. but yeah they hired these john Wick. well yeah. stunt coordinator but i feel like story-wise too yeah this idea of like her trying to get her yeah. now that she's open season oh, she's right yeah. and she has this bounty on her head or yep. whatever and she's obviously not like that character where she's like no. just destroying everybody but she's got the ability to continue on and find a way to make it through this maze or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was good. It kind of stopped towards the end of the film, but another thing that I really liked about this was the bizarre nonlinear storytelling that this decided to try to have. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because it never felt weirdly like doing it for the sake of, we don't have an interesting story. So if we jumble it up, it felt more like almost like Scorsese light in that it was kind of like through the eyes of Harley, which is that she's usually not thinking about every single angle. So when these, things resurface that's when she's like oh yeah i remember the event we mm. cut to and whatnot which both added to i think the character details of who harley quinn is but then also the humor of it all um i actually love that kind of seasoning of her character which is that who she is is technically or at least who she's been i think mm. uh up until that point has been this kind of second fiddle character you know the joker's the big guy and mm. she's just as uh, his girlfriend yep. and I feel like that kind of informs the fact that like we would never see a Batman movie where all these like petty criminals think that they have a shot at. I mean we do in the sense that like people try to take down yeah. the Batman but not like in a way where they just show up wherever he's you know eating dinner or whatever <laughs> and then like I'm gonna take you out now or whatever but because she's Harley Quinn and I think that there's a bit of unstated sexism there in, in a pointed way mm-hmm. uh, for sure that these people just think that they can take a shot at her and um, ultimately that's obviously not good for them yeah and I guess I would just end by saying that almost everything with Ian McGregor in this film playing the character of Black Mask is um, whether it be the awkward sexual tension between him and his handler Victor says yeah I will say Chris Messina as Victor Zaz uh, is 
so great because that's never going to be a flashy character or anything like that. So it's going to be hard to be like, oh, he did it better than that person or whatever. But I have to admit, whenever I've seen him in comics, uh, and he, somebody also plays him on uh, the show Gotham and whatnot, like that, the way they had Chris Messina mm-hmm. made up and everything, that's exactly how I picture him. But also, he played it. I would, I would say he was a very good foil for uh, Black Mass, like ridiculousness basically yeah and uh so many of the lines and also just the line deliveries that ian mcgregor has are wonderful mostly in the first two acts of the film the third act is like him becoming this like big bad sort of character but i i did also appreciate that he's pretty much dispatched of pretty easily towards the end of the film yeah i kind of love that they didn't give him a big whatever and i think that's kind of true to the point which is that harley quinn was always bigger than him mm-hmm. but he liked to play it up bigger so. i would i would agree yeah. uh yeah a lot of his characteristics i think were a little oversimplistic in this film but also like added to the fun of it yeah just another example of that and i think this is something that is I feel like it's odd that it took this long to get here, which it was Deadpool being successful to push us through to this point. But some of these movies have to be rated R. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, I don't really think you could make an entertaining movie about Harley Quinn at this point and have it be toned down. Yeah, no. And I have to say, everything that's been coming about it, coming out about the Batman directed by Matt Reeves. I'm hoping that's rated R because not because that I think one, it, that, that one might be more I'm tough pretty to sell. sure it's going to be rated PG-13, mm-hmm. but what I would say is if they really want to do a dark and gritty thing, which is apparently what they want to do cuz they keep saying that over and over, mm-hmm. um we've had dark and gritty PG-13 Batmans. So in my opinion, at least go all out so we have something a little different. I mean, I expect it to be better than Batman v Superman, whatever, Mm -hmm. because I like Matt Reeves a lot and whatnot. But also, like, let's try to do something a little different. But We shall see. Yeah. So uh, the film we are talking about, actually, on this episode is a movie that I absolutely love from my younger years. Uh, and Nick uh, just caught on to four, uh, caught on to four, uh, watched for the first time. I did caught on to four. Yeah, boy, yeah. Uh, watched for the first time, and that is the 1993 film The Fugitive. Uh, this film centers around Dr. Richard, Richard Kimball, who unjustly accused of murdering his wife, must find the real killer while being the target of a nationwide manhunt led by a seasoned U.S. Marshal. So the film does feature, as I mentioned, Harrison Ford and also Tommy Lee Jones, and also features uh, other people who show up in smaller roles like Cella Ward, who plays Dr. Kimball's wife, who was murdered in the first scene of the film. Also, Julianne Moore, who apparently had a much larger role in this film, but um, almost all of her scenes were cut. I was wondering about that because I was like, oh, she's playing this character who's mm-hmm. not really in this movie <laughs> yeah she's got like third billing or whatever yeah. so it features all kinds of other people who are decent character actors most notably uh joe pentliano <laughs> playing cosmo renfro what a name yeah uh so and a bunch of other people that you'll see coming special shout out from my end here to andrea casalas 
who plays the Frederick Sykes, mm-hmm. uh, who outside of the Fugitive plays uh, the character of Jakar on Babylon Five, a oh. very underrated sci-fi show. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this was directed by Andrew Davis, who in the early '90s apparently was like not like the greatest director, but also <laughs> was making films that people were like going to the theater and enjoying because the year prior he made the film with uh, Steven Seagal called under siege yes. that a lot of people think is pretty great. Yeah. Yep. So uh, since then it's not gone too well for old Mr. Davis, but oh. so anyways, uh, mostly I was driving this uh, film being talked about on this podcast. So I guess I'll lead us off uh, on our little discussion we're going to have here. I think this movie is pretty much, like, just on the borderline of perfect. Like, I don't think it's, like, the best movie ever, and I do not give it a perfect rating, even if I did give it a perfect rating the last time I rated it, which was a mistake, because it's not. I think this movie is absolutely wonderful. I feel like I rewatch this movie maybe, like, every, like, three or four years, and every time I put it on, I feel like I forget about it a little bit, where I say to myself, yeah, this is pretty good. I'll watch it. And I end up watching it all the way through every time. And I feel like I can never always put my finger on exactly what I love so much about it. But I felt like this last time I watched it, I did do that, which is what made me like excited to want to do an episode about it. Even if we don't like have like a three hour episode like we have before many times, it's a shorter thing talking about it. But I love that this this era of movie making, I think because this era was super interested in having a really simple storyline and allowing characters who are not that smart uh, just fumble their way through this story in these grandiose type events that are happening. I mean, this movie has pretty much everything if you're wanting to watch an action film but it's all done by middle-aged white people so um not saying that that's good or bad hell yeah but uh this is a different era than we would see today where you would see younger people who are like going through these extraordinary exhibitions or or whatever happening or they would be superheroes in some way or another like this is a couple 50 year old white guys who are just trying to either clear their name or hunt the person down or do their job or whatever. Uh, And I think that this movie is also super fantastic because the two lead characters are way overplaying (laughs) their roles in this movie. And I have a really deep appreciation for people who oversell their roles, especially in a good way, like is happening in this film. Uh, Harrison Ford early on in this movie like sets the cards in that opening scene where he's like giving his testimony in the like first like five minutes of this movie. He's like, you find the killer. You you do it. I'm not I'm not guilty. You find the killer. Like just that like ridiculous over the top nonsense is a perfect table setter for this Um, and leads into just one of I don't want to say the best because I overuse that term so much but uh, looking at this era where CGI was like 
slowly peeking its head in and saying, we can do things computer generated, but they were still like predominantly doing physical effects. This had one of the most awesome chase and exciting scenes I can recall from this time period, which is when Richard Kimball played by Harrison Ford is being transferred to a different hospital uh, and the huge, everything that happens with the bus having the guy doing the attack on it. And then the bus rolls over and then gets run over by the train. And there's this enormous explosion that's happening. There's so much going on in a three minute time lapse there. Uh, and we see Harrison Ford escaping from the bus, trying to help people because he's a doctor. Other people who are police officers trying to take credit for what happened because they think other people are dead. Uh, and then Harrison Ford helps some people off there. He has to give up on other people because they're close to death and there's a train coming. And then we see just this nonsensical shit that would ever happen, which is him climbing to the top of the bus and deciding to wait to jump off at the exact moment when the train runs into it. And it actually looks really good for a film of this era. Um, fast forward just briefly, and I'm, I'm rambling here a bit, so I'm sorry about that, Nick. Yeah. But um, when Tommy Lee Jones shows up is when this movie actually becomes what it is, because this is really like Tommy Lee Jones had obviously a career before this film, but like, his career was defined by this performance. Like he, for the rest of his career had to play this he asshole, won, right? He and won an Academy award yeah. for this film. And for the rest of time, he had to play this character yep. for every film he was in because he like is somehow like harnessing that same thing that someone like Ray Fiennes is doing right now where he is this charming asshole for the entire film. And yeah. it is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, he, almost every line to delivery is great. He's just got all of these. They're not like they're they're so good because like he says these sarcastic, somewhat like close to demeaning things to his coworkers, but at the same time, he's also like this like charming man who everyone wants to be like. So it's it's just really such a weird place to be in. And then you have on the other side. The guy he's chasing is this assumed to be innocent doctor who is just trying to clear his name when no one will listen to him. So he's going to all these different lengths to find out why this happened to him, why his wife was murdered, and also clear his name. I mean, there, there's so much going on in this movie. It is pretty insane that it all just happens as tightly as it does. And it's such a fun package. Um, there's moments throughout here that are great whether it's the um almost undoubtedly um ref not not reference but it 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 feels too much too much like uh harrison ford's iconic star wars moment with uh leia where she says i love you and he says i know when he's like trying to like plead his case tommy lee jones he's like i didn't kill my wife and he just screams back I don't care. Like, I don't know. It just, that is a perfect mirror image of that moment that happened earlier in his career. And he jumps off the, the end of the dam pretty much. Uh, but this film, the way it progresses, him solving the case, exposing the one armed man, uh, which is a great, 
thing that mostly is what this movie is remembered for is it wasn't me it was the one armed man uh and then uh this goes to the end of it where he bursts in in this huge show uh to confront the doctor who set him up while he's giving his (laughs) while he's giving his like lecture on how great this medicine is first of all that shows this film's age because i loved watching back like i was like belly laughing at this guy's speech who's like the doctor who he used to work with who's talking about how great this new drug is they'd made first of all he leads off by saying this drug it almost sounded like donald trump trying to peddle a drug he's like this drug is great it has no side effects i'm like hell yeah (laughs) sign me up (laughs) well my big thing about that scene really quick is that i love that harrison ford walks in Everybody knows who he is. I mean, mm-hmm. they keep saying that throughout the whole movie that this is such a national story. Not yeah. to mention he's back in Chicago, <laughs> and uh, he's if he's walking into a room full of pharmaceuticals, he probably knows people in there. Oh yeah. So the idea, to me at least, that he would walk in there, the guy would like stop for a second, but then just continue his yeah. speech instead of saying like, "Got like," because at that moment you got to figure that he's there for you. So I yeah. feel like he. There's a weird missed opportunity there where, in reality, that guy would be like, guards, get him. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he well, killed his wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, but... But, yeah, anyway. Obviously, couldn't say that because Harrison Ford, other than... Uh, does he know that, though? What's that? That Harrison Ford is, like, onto him, onto him? Oh, at that point, he does. I mean, like, knows that he's there to do that, but does he... I don't guess... I guess I would just feel like it's a better gamble <laughs> to yeah. lock him up. I mean, it's a weird thing because he's in public, so he's like trying to keep up the right, image, and he yeah. still thinks that he can turn the public opinion, probably. Yeah. But Harrison Ford has a fabulous line delivery where he says he switched the samples. <laughs> uh, that is just, and he ends. I don't remember what the the name of it is, but I have to look yeah. it up. But he says he we had to do all this so he could give you. Perlaxin or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, just those line deliveries are absolutely epic. Uh, Harrison Ford is great in this. Tommy Lee Jones, Oscar winner for this film, is giving a wonderful asshole performance. This is just a fun ride. This is just a good time sitting down, a good two-hour thriller that has a really simple story, but at the same time is just fun from start to finish. Although there is some parts in this that are a little weird. uh, Like, and I mean, it's kind of a cutesy part of it, but where Harrison Ford like saves the life of some child. No, I have a comment on that. Okay. But I will say, actually, I think that's one of the better parts for a specific, for a specific reason. Okay. Anyways, I thought that was a good humane moment for him. Of him, like, even though he's doing this, he's still a doctor. But at the same time, it is a kind of weird sidetrack to this to get on where he's, like, trying to do this. So it's an interesting character detail. But I have very few negative things to say about this. Like, even though it's not a perfect film for me, this is a just an enjoyable thrill ride that I like watching more and more every time I see it. Just because the beginning part of it is so ridiculous and the entertainment between the two main characters and the way that they progress throughout the story just always keeps the film moving and keeps the plot progressing. And even though I know the outcomes, it's still just as fun the fifth time through than the first time I saw it. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I feel weird about this movie mm-hmm. because 
A, I've heard a lot of people like yourself spout off even current day how much they love this movie, how much it holds up, mm-hmm. how much that they think that they don't make them like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely true, that last part. Um, so I was like actually really primed to like this. Like I was excited to watch it and excited to sit down and finally have a reason to do it. When you suggested it, I jumped at it. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, we should, sh- totally. Yep. It, for whatever reason, did not click with me. Okay. I did enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. not a bad movie by any means, but there were some things about it that I just, for whatever reason, didn't quite click with. But I do want to go over the positives first. Okay. Um, I do agree that like this movie being made in the era that it was, especially on that wave of movies from like Die Hard to Ransom with Mel Gibson to you know this where there there is something kind of special about how adult blockbusters used to actually star adults and like <laughs> and you know like have this kind of Joe love feel to it where uh, almost Hitchcockian where hmm. these average people average looking people um, not necessarily physically but just like the, their demeanors and whatnot would get roped into these larger than life scenarios that were not larger than life in a fast and furious way <laughs> where it like defies the laws of like gravity and yeah. mor- morality but um, but in ways where it's like it's everyone's worst nightmare and something like this would I would think would be everyone's worst nightmare to sure. be accused for your, something your, you... your wife is murdered and you're going to jail for your frame for a murder exactly so yeah. I definitely pretty much did enjoy this um and it, so one thing is what i just said um another thing is i absolutely love the uh chicago shooting oh, yeah. uh you know locale like yeah it's a little biased but you know seeing the saint patrick's day parade sequence and the the river running green i was like oh wow that's something that would never be shot today like yeah. you know for the most part that would just be a cgi if Ch- someone really wanted to even Ch- do that. chicago was more in that era oh yeah a destination yeah like even like it's not as good of a film but a film that i enjoy i mean even though it's kevin spacey but the mid-90s film the negotiator with kevin spacey oh, okay. and samuel jackson yeah. is very enjoyable ferris bueller i mean yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yep. yeah. I mean, like these are iconic movies that basically I think Chicago makes them in a lot of ways, uh, as far as giving them a certain feel that you can't get anywhere else. Um, and um, another thing I did like was I did like the acting. Uh, obviously, that's pretty much what carries this entire movie was that the two actors are pretty much on the same wavelength, not giving the same performance, but basically feeding off of each other in a way, in a very <laughs> symbiosis way that carries the entire film. So I ultimately did like this movie. What I was not, what I just didn't connect with, um, oh, you know what? I'll say one more thing I liked. Okay. Because I said it earlier when I hinted at with the little kid. Okay. One thing I did like is that the show that this is based off of that aired on ABC back in the uh, 50s or 60s, I think. Anyway, okay. back in black and white okay. <laughs> television days. Um, that was actually the model for the show. There was over uh, just over 100 episodes of this show. Exact same premise. There's a guy named Richard Kimball. His wife is murdered. And when he approaches his house, because his wife is murdered when he's not home, Mm -hmm. he sees a one-armed man running out of his house. So that's the impetus for, you know, all that, right? Mm -hmm. And then... uh, the whatever his name Gerard uh, Samuel Gerard yeah shows yeah. up and thinks he did it and whatnot 
So what's interesting about the show is the show picks up like the like literally the first second of the show is a narrator explaining that, and then it's a year later, mm. and the entire show is about how Richard Kimball, the fugitive himself, is basically just living a fugitive life where he assimilates into other societies. So each episode found him going into another person's problem and basically Mm. trying to solve it, and then having to leave because he can't really stay there, usually because either Gerard would show up maybe in the next town over, and then he can't stay there, or things would get a little too personal, and therefore he can't leave ties here, you know, and having to go. So I actually think the scene in the hospital was a very good distillation of what that show used to be, Mm. which is that... He wasn't just a fugitive. He was such a fundamentally good person <laughs> that it wasn't that he had a disregard for the way, you know, for morality and whatnot. It's that, you know, he, like, he well, would, he, while he was there, he felt like he had yeah, to say something. Like, why wouldn't he do yeah. it? Because at the end of the day, he'd rather not, you know, he'd rather say something and maybe get in trouble than, you know, you know, walk Let away the from kid it. Die or whatever. Yeah, so that's uh, and you know also too just a little behind the scenes. But the show itself was pitched as uh, Les Misérables, but with a modern day telling, and mm. not so much that it would be like a you stole a loaf of bread or anything like that, mm. but a crazy police person who will stop at nothing to find a person because he believes that. You know, the law is the law, and in his own eyes and perspective, if you do this, then you broke it. Which is certainly different from what Gerard's character is in this film. I would agree with that, but it, it's still that kind of starry-eyed, I don't care what you say. No, no that is, but yeah. he's definitely, I mean, uh, probably like him, halfway through the film, he was he starts... convicted. Yeah. So therefore, it's not like he was the investigating officer. But through, I, I think halfway through this film, Gerard starts to have doubts about oh, that. Oh, absolutely. And that's why it gets to a showdown in which one person has to save the other, mm-hmm. despite the fact that that might not be in their best interest and whatnot. So anyway, that whole Les Miserables is basically an influence on both the show and the movie and whatnot. Um, going off of a few things that I just didn't connect with was would probably be the pacing of this movie, which mm. is not that I ever found it slow or fast, but I think that there's one ultimate thing that this movie didn't need that it did, which is, like I said about the show, you know every, you know all the facts of the case, and then the show just starts. I don't think there's any reason for this movie to pussyfoot around the fact that the one-armed man is the killer. Like, it takes a good 40 to 50, maybe to an hour, to visually confirm who the killer is in his own flashbacks. And... I feel like to play with the ambiguity of whether Richard Kimball is innocent, because I, I don't think the movie. I don't think the movie ever. I think really you think that because the... it's been so long since it first came out, mm. and it's based on a property in which innocence was always presumed by the audience virtue. But okay. I watched it last, you know, two days ago for the first time, and I was like, really? They're playing with this where they keep cutting away from his face and they won't really let the audience basically see that. And it's not so much that I was like, oh, this is ambiguous. Did he do it? Did he not do it? But I don't think that there was a real purpose to the kind of uh, obfuscation of his memories to the from the audience perspective because... 
he is so sure of what he saw, and for good reason. Because See, here's the only thing I'll say about that, though. I think more to do with it is that I agree with what you're saying, that like since I made my opinion on this film... 20 years ago or whenever I saw it for the first time, like it's hard to distance myself from what that was to what my feelings are now. But I feel like from this era, like there is no, there is no realm where Harrison Ford would have been the killer in this story. So I feel like the idea of him being like, I feel like that ambiguity we were talking about, which I mean is there, especially in the early part of this film that I guess does drag it down a bit. I still think his identity is ambiguous. Okay. The one-armed man's identity. Oh, but, uh, but so what? I mean... Well, I don't mean like, for, for like the most, he for should the... know his name or something like that. But, but... but as the film... Like, this film is not interested in that character. Like, the one-armed man is like just a throwaway pawn in this film. Agree. And I think it could have been slightly more interesting okay. if... There was slightly more impetus on Harrison Ford's character to catch the one-armed man because he doesn't actually start doing that until 40 minutes. Like, it takes him a while to basically think, oh, the only way people will believe I'm innocent is if I actually go after the killer. That's, that, that, and that's true. Well, he needs to solve his own murder. That's a pretty yeah. popular trope, especially in this era. But at the same time... um. This film is way more interested in the Richard Campbell, Samuel Gerard relationship than it is okay. anything involving his killer. Okay, and I will say yes and no. Okay. In the sense that I think that's the best part of the movie, mm-hmm. but the movie and the other fundamental change of the story structure here compared to something like the TV show is that it does turn the murder into a conspiratorial thing, whereas... In the show, it's the random thing. It's a one-armed dude who happened to go into the house, kill his wife, and he has to find him, you know, whatever. Which is what this film is. I it guess, is. I guess what I'm, I'm... But it's not random. It is so weirdly telegraphed and so weirdly convoluted. Oh, you, that... mean, you mean the action of the one-armed man? Yeah, okay. and, and what he's tied into and the betrayal of his friend and whatnot. Yeah. It, and it seemed like this story is larger than... I felt like that started to overshadow like the uh, the structure of what this murder was. Should have made well... it that much more clear what went down that night if it was so related to what was happening in his life. Whereas, for example, like in the show, if it's random, that's hard to prove. It's hard to find a person who is not tied to... It is, but... Okay, so if I'm a viewer watching this movie and, and... And you are. Thank you. And you're trying to tie this story up in some way for a not long form television show, but for a hour and 45 minute film... Um, how do you have it just be some guy who just went to kill his wife just for the fun of it? Well, you say, how do you have it? And yet, two minutes ago, you just said that this movie is about Harrison Ford no, it and is. Tommy Lee Jones. No, it is. So if it, it is, is, it shouldn't need that, right? Like, you should be able to emotionally sew that through line between the two of them. But, but what, what, the... what, what, what audience, especially in early 90s, was going to the theater wanting to just see a film that's about a, a guy on the run and his potential capturer who wants to find him and not care about getting his man on the other side. Like, I feel like I, 
I'm with you. But uh, everybody and... only talks about Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. It's not like people are like, remember the Frederick Sykes twist where he turned out to be the gunman? Because, because I think for most people, myself included, that part of the story is inconsequential. Exactly. Which is what you're, I know it's what you're saying. But I so guess then I, the, the unraveling yeah. of it is thoroughly uninteresting to me. I don't need to spend time... I feel like the unraveling of it kind of really doesn't really become a large part of the story it does until the, the last half. act. Yeah. Well, I would say the back half. Um, finding out who Frederick Sykes is is essentially, you know, like... Um, it, the other thing, too, is that Tommy Lee Jones' character would in no way be able to hunt down Harrison Ford if there wasn't a conspiracy either. Because he has to follow the same thread. If it was, right. once again, if it was a random person, that would have been you know harder to prove and harder to whatever. Which means that by the end of the movie, he's no longer chasing Harrison Ford. He's actually chasing Harrison Ford's investigation, and Harrison Ford is no longer essentially running away from Tommy Lee Jones in that last half. He's just going through the motions of a conspiratorial plot that is frankly only set up in the last. 40 okay. minutes because does, I never once got the feeling that during those opening prologue scenes when he's at the party that any of that was set up. But doesn't that make for a better film, though? No. You don't think so? <laughs> no. You don't You don't think him having a reason to have to come back makes for a better film? Having a reason to come back to what? Like, to come back to Chicago? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, I think there are other reasons you could have came up with, so I don't think that it's not so much okay. that he came back was bad. I think... I mean, he... Okay, I guess my view of it is... And I mean, I know we're not necessarily saying different things here, but you just have a different take on it than I yeah, do. No, but that's like, why I'm loving this conversation. Sure. So he comes back. He has to come back to Chicago because that's where his murder is, but that's also where people he knows are. So he's got allies there who are kind of friendlies, but not really... He's got the guy who he thinks is really his ally, who's actually the person who set all of these events in motion. Yeah. And I will say one thing about that part it's of the story. big line, coincidence um, that he would call that person. Yeah, but I do think that that is... Um, Does he not have family? I mean, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's like... We don't find out much about his family. No, we only find out things that the plot... This hinges on. So I'll, I'll grant you that. I'm emotionally invested in the two characters. I will say that mm-hmm. of Tommy Lee Jones and him. Yeah. But anyway. so what I, I guess what I'm sort of getting at is that Harrison Ford comes back and he's going through all this trouble to try to solve his own, his, his, his create his own innocence, basically just to show people that he is the one. He's not the one who killed his wife. And this is who it is. And this is what I'm trying to prove. And in doing that, obviously finds out that his wife was killed because of him, which is unfortunate, yeah. obviously, for him <laughs> uh, and real for her, <laughs> especially for her. Uh, so I don't know, man. Like, I, I feel like I agree with you in this sense that I feel like there are parts of the later part of this film, especially um, when we're having like the final battle scene between... Uh, Harrison Ford, the guy who's the head of the drug company, and then Tommy Lee Jones is like kind of like... And Joe Pantoliano makes it there, too. So you have four people. Some are important, some are not, and some were only introduced as important about 30 minutes ago. (laughs) But but the the ending of this film, especially, I mean, watching it multiple times, rewatching, 
is very anticlimactic. Like he just knocks this guy out. He doesn't kill him or whatever. And then they drive away and he takes off his handcuffs and he's like, Oh, I know you're innocent, whatever. Fine. So that part of it, I will say doesn't unravel quite a bit um, at the very end, but it, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's saved for me because Harrison Ford is giving this incredible over the top performance where he is calling out this drug person at his own, (laughs) like event that is going on like it's like like those are things that like people dream about of just like (laughs) shitting on the person who you hate that much in public and like basically pantsing them and ruining their reputation right before they are taken to jail like it's like magic that's happening and it's just to me like there are flaws here which i will grant you but at the same time I don't know, like yeah. uh, what what you're saying in in what my viewing of the film. Like, I feel like it's not enough to even think about me think about changing my opinion on it. Oh so, no, and I'm I know not, you're not trying yeah, to, but right, at the same right. time, like just listening to what you're saying yeah, and the yeah, valid yeah. criticisms. Yeah, yeah. But for for me, like it's I just s- a, a good fun film that has this other storyline that is obviously consequential to the story, but at the same time is not what people are wanting to watch on this. And that's, I think a hallmark actually of a film like this that becomes a classic, even if this isn't like really a classic, like a film uh, that many people over time, uh, a little bit have regarded as one of the greatest movies of Americans history, which is the Shawshank redemption, which I would like to do an episode on someday, mostly because it is very much overrated. I mean, yeah, it's like one of the institutions of cinema right. these days. Yeah. But it is a good movie, but at the same time, it is not The Godfather or yeah. anything like that. Uh, but that being said... It's not even Chappie. <laughs> oof. Just that's kidding. rough. It's better than Chappie. <laughs> it's a low bar. What like people don't go back to Shawshank Redemption for all the plot beats? Like they are going there. For... No, but that's a very character-driven movie. Yeah, I mean that's a series of vignettes devoted to. I, I, yeah, I mean I see what you're saying, but mm-hmm. this is a plot-driven movie. This is story beat. It is a plot-driven story beat. It is a plot-driven film, but I think that myself included is not the reason why people go back to watch it. Correct. Uh, I would agree with that. Um, I guess I'll say this: by saving grace, as far as like what I think would have made that ending work without editing. I mean, as far as like mm-hmm. as is and whatnot, is if I, and I don't think, but if you could rewatch those opening scenes at that party, and see any trace of that twist, you know, upon rewatch, I think it would be a complete package and whatnot. But because I feel like those scenes were shot without that twist in mind because it was such a myopic view from Harrison Ford's like, Oh, nothing's amiss here. Um, because then we even see weird scenes later on in the movie that are essentially things that happened at the party, (laughs) uh, that are almost recontextualized in a way we didn't see them, you know, uh, and I get that that can somewhat be, you know, a visualization of a character realizing things that he thought were unimportant are now important. But it also feels like a, a slightly more confident take on this would have had those subtly uh, intersped with the regular scenes, you know. Uh, 
that that played out in the beginning. So um, I I don't think it's some kind of like death blow to the movie or anything like yeah. that. But I do think as a new viewer who was really looking forward to a Tommy Lee Jones versus Harrison Ford, and I certainly got that through a lot of this movie. I thought that final forty minutes or so uh, lost sight of that for what I thought was an uninteresting, uh, not necessarily culmination, but like a deep dive into something that didn't need it. Like, I know that there's a one-armed man. I know he killed his wife. Mm -hmm. I didn't personally think that there was a larger story there. And so the fact that there was didn't necessarily surprise me, nor did it like elevate it to be like, well, you know, that's crazy. Um, Because the plotting of it then gets a little bit weird because, like, the moment he finds Frederick Sykes and then he handcuffs him to a train and then just runs away like that, I don't understand. Here's the person. And I know that there's a larger thing at work there, but, like, you, I, <laughs> I'm i trying to figure out the... <laughs> but I think he does that because the script calls for it so he can go to the pharmaceutical thing and then the same way that no, I... No, but I, I, feel, I feel like one thing is that, like, he's figured out that Frederick Sykes is just the is just the goon. Oh, he's got it all figured out. Yeah. But also this is the person that killed your wife. So that's where I think that the movie doesn't realize that it accidentally did a seismic shift in its focus, but which I don't is, think I don't think that like I get, never get the feeling from Richard Kimball that he is like a person that is like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, who is like seeking out bloodthirst revenge. Oh, he's not seeking out bloodthirst. He, he just he just wants to clear his life and go cl- I just clear think... his name and grieve and go back to growing his beard and being a doctor again. I agree with that, and that is less of a because you know unfortunately she's dead, so it's not so much that she's he's trying to make things right. Yes, and I agree, it's all about clearing his name. I just think the action of him handcuffing him and then running away into the night, like. I don't know. There's nothing else you want to do with him. Like you don't want to bring him to a kick him in the balls cell or even... well. I mean, why in, can't he then it, call? It, it, I wait, he but here's well, the thing: he can't. He can't because why wait, can't he call Tommy Lee Jones at that point? I don't know. No, I'm just saying. Like, why would he still Tommy... thinks he's guilty at that? point. Okay, right? but you now have a one-armed yeah. man that in you custody. can. I'm just saying, in custody that you can point to the receipts. <laughs> Now, Why? So, so uh, going with what you some of you said earlier, this is definitely a plot-driven thing. But obviously, the police are out to get him. Oh, for sure. Uh, I'm not saying I. There is now a dead policeman in that same area that this fight has just taken place. Which is why I think Tommy Lee Jones would be his best friend. Oh, maybe. Because he's not a policeman. He's a U.S. Marshal. And I know that sounds like I'm making a joke, but I actually mean that in the sense that he's only interested in Kimball, so he's not affiliated with the local police. Yeah. Uh, So I'm nitpicking, and I totally get that. So I'm not saying that this is what makes the movie bad. No, it's fine. But I definitely think that this is where the movie starts to zig and zag and whatnot, uh, where I think it could have just been slightly more laser focused now i will having said that mm-hmm. i will say i absolutely love that subway sequence yeah. um uh, although i did giggle because uh the the guy the guy who plays the beat cop you know that dies uh is neil flynn who plays the janitor in scrubs oh. and um there is an actual episode devoted to jd you know zach braff's character watching the fugitive scene neil flynn in that scene and 
going and asking the janitor because the janitor is one of his running jokes that he always has a mysterious past that he lies about every single thing and so you never learn a single thing about him so of course when JD goes to ask him if that's actually him in in the fugitive he plays it up like I don't know who is it you know and actually at the very end of the episode he uh, when JD's leaving the hospital the janitor played by Neil Flynn goes JD freeze and kind of basically confirms the only detail in the Scrubs universe that you know about the janitor, which is that he played the cop in The Fugitive. Anyway, when I saw that, I giggled because I totally forgot about that subplot and that that was like in this movie. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was adorable. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did actually enjoy that sequence as like the foot chase and in the subway and the way he has to like kind of jump out the window to get onto the elevated, you know, whatnot. Mm. And that's part of where the whole bias comes in with loving that it's a Chicago-based film because I'm like, oh, God, that's exactly how it would happen. I know know what that is. So, yeah, right on. So, um, final ratings, if you want to go go first. Yeah, so I give us a three out of five, which means, I mean, I do like it, so it's, like, weird for me to, I'm not trying to be antagonistic about it. I guess I'm just trying to articulate why, for whatever reason, Upon my first viewing, it just for, you know, like, I think I could very easily come to appreciate it Mm -hmm. for what it is, but um, I wasn't quite ready for that kind of, really the conspiracy angle, I think. Everything else I was definitely liking, if not loving, but... um, uh, but God, I will say there's so many people that show up in this movie, like yeah. a small, I mean, Jane Lynch as one of the doctors, yeah. uh, obviously we talked about Julianne Moore and whatnot, but a few others that I remember, uh, that happened. Uh, one other thing I will nitpick though, <laughs> because I just want to shout it out cause I forgot to mention it is, I'm sorry, but the most ridiculous scene in the whole movie is when they find out where the other prisoner is, uh, from the bus. Their plan is to wait 24 hours and then dress up as hobos and approach the house and but not really do anything with that costuming and or weird affectation they put on because then after 10 seconds of doing that, they already start flipping the U.S. Marshal labeling down. So it's like, I don't think that bought you any distance whatsoever because... I, I don't know. It was just so bizarre because that I really thought there was like going to be this huge sting and like this was going to be crazy. And but it's over in five seconds. And the way they just start ripping those like I'm like, oh, okay. Thank you for identifying yourself on so, your back. So um, they made a sequel to this film. Do uh, they do that in that movie? Okay, so repeatedly because I would watch the shit out of that. I was getting there. So it is a vastly inferior film to this called U.S. Marshals, yeah. um, and the film centers around Samuel Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and his whole crew is back for the most part, including mm. Joe Pantoliano, Cosmo. Uh, yep, uh, and. The film is another person on the run who is wrongfully accused of being guilty, uh, played by Wesley Snipes. Uh, And then there is another FBI agent who may not be on the up and up, who is played by, in the middle of his prime drug addiction, Robert Downey Jr. So, anyways, the film opens with this really bizarre... but really quick, just so I understand, Mm -hmm. is Tommy Lee Jones playing in... Like the U.S. Marshal that's hunting him down. Yes. So he's just hunt. Does he know that the other person is wrongfully convicted, or is he doing the same exact? No, it's thing? the same thing. Like where he's like, "Oh, you're guilty." Yes. Oh, that's a very weird mistake to make twice. Right back. But <laughs> anyway. this person, it's a black person, so that's good. But this time, it's a black person. Yeah. Well. So, 
That's fine. That's a little more true to life, but anyway. <laughs> Anywho, I mean, I mean wrongful conviction. It's 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 the Hangover Part Two. It is the same story oh, over there, baby. Again. Yeah. So, anyways, that film opens with this ridiculous over the top sting that's happening, where um, they're outside this gangbanger drug dealer's house, whatever. I don't remember the exact human being. Sure, Alex. Yep. Uh, so, anyways, uh, they're like running this restaurant on wheels type thing, uh, and there's this chicken outside, like this huge chicken, an actual chicken? mascot. Oh. No, this huge chicken yeah. mascot that you know looks like Foghorn Leghorn or something oh. like that. Anyways, so he's hot. Yeah. It is revealed that Tommy Lee Jones is inside of this, <laughs> okay. and then they go through this sting in this house. So he's running through there in this ridiculous chicken outfit. You're making this movie sound better yeah. than The Fugitive. If I'm being on it now, yeah, uh, um, that, that is that is one of the high points of, of uh, this okay. film. I, it other like other, it. other than again, as I mentioned, it is very much like The Hangover Two, where it is the same thing where it's like trying up. So like they have the exact same like almost shot for shot. Uh, the exact same thing happened where he has to escape because of this huge Crash, collision that happens, yeah. but it's an airplane and a train. So an airplane and a train. Yeah. Oh boy, you hate when that happens. Uh, yeah. So for me, the fugitive is three out of five, and I uh, will end it on a good note and say that it's definitely a great example of what thrillers used to look like uh, for better. And I, I definitely love that kind of. Uh, aesthetic that this movie absolutely holds up so uh so i give it four and a half out of five uh i love tommy lee jones in this movie like i think that this is a good example of why he got kramered into playing the same kind of character for the rest of his career for the moment i mean somebody some... say cosmo kramered ah but playing the delightful asshole perfectly is done by tommy lee jones in relatable this movie. Uh, he <laughs> he is like this movie peaks in a really random spot for me when he's talking to the guy who's leading the police whatever and he's like nope you need to do this and the guy's like well no I think we got this under control he's like oh look we found the handcuffs nope. like just just undressing this guy in public in front of his reports like the worst thing you'd ever want to do and yet he's positively doing it is just amazing so the acting in this movie i think is great especially with our two main characters here who are just putting on loud over-the-top performances that are a lot of fun to watch and this movie has a pretty good story even though uh some of nick's criticisms are definitely have have validity to them Eh, not really i mean they do and they don't like I have my disagreements with it, but at the same time, like, yes, that is not the main part of the story. Uh, and it also does drag down the good parts of this film a little bit. But at the same time, this is just a fun ride to go on. And a lot of interest is kept, even when I watch it on rewatches, like I was saying, I've seen this many times and I always come back to it for whatever reason. And I think it is because that this film genuinely has good action good story beats good script writing even though it's just a fun thriller for the most part uh there's a lot of great dialogue between the characters here that is funny and sometimes witty and sometimes like 
sheriff western dark in a way uh and it's just a lot of fun so it's a good time at the at the sitting at home watching it and you know probably 25 years ago it was fun at the cinema as well so yep it was I'm, nominated for best picture i'm not surprised i'm slightly surprised that was a different era i mean it was which is why i'm not completely surprised yeah but... So four and a half out of five for me for The Fugitive, which I think is just a delightful film. So if you out there have any thoughts on The Fugitive, uh, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Or you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. You can also find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com. Or you can find them on different services, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or anywhere else where you can find podcasts. I mean, not anywhere else, but a lot of other places. So you can find us there at film. Thanks show coming up on our next episode, going to continue with uh, a theme that not necessarily we've established for this year, um, but something that we've wanted to do more of uh, going forward, which is doing more films from older eras, uh, which we've, I think for the most part done so far over the last couple months. Um, even though Fugitive Just, isn't like an old film. It's no, but I mean, basically letting up the gas on new releases. Yeah. That's the big effect. And we're still going to do those, oh, yeah. and, and, and it'll be fun to... I'm glad we didn't feel the need to devote an episode to Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, I mean, and we still talked about it, so and we'll still be doing that. Uh, but something that Nick is a huge fan of, uh, especially if you've listened, I mean, other than uh, exploitation films, which yeah. he has definitely become a big fan of, and other genres... Um, Nick is a huge fan of foreign film, and we do not do very much foreign film on this podcast, which is you know good and bad. Um, but uh, this is going to be the second because they are first repeat offender for uh, directors of a foreign, which film. is one of I would say just from hearing the way you've talked about him over time, one of Nick's favorite foreign film directors. At least I mean I know you one have of my favorite directors. Yeah, just in time. general. Yep. I mean it's PTA and him. It's basically like. Okay. Who I think can do no wrong. Uh, and that film is Igmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, uh, which we are going to talk about coming up on episode 221. Uh, I have never seen it and know nothing about it, so if you just wanted to give a little mention of exactly what we'll be getting ourselves into next week. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a uh, film from 1957 in which an atheistic knight returns back to his homeland while the Black Plague is happening. And uh, he's basically, before he's about to die, he's given a chance to play chess with death. And mm. it's not a uh, chess match <laughs> played out in real time. They basically make a move, and then he's able to walk away and kind of interact with real life for a little while mm. before having to make the next move and whatnot. But, like, all the media you've ever seen that has referenced the just the iconography of a person playing chess with death it stems from this movie and from mm. the uh from the visuals and the idea i mean last action hero essentially that's where that joke comes in from the last uh in the final act of that movie that death is allowed to come out because they're screening the seven seal hmm. uh and death walks out of the screen for that reason hmm. um so obviously a lot of movies have either parodied it and uh homaged it but the actual movie is also really good so it is easily one of the first genuine art house classics i think of world cinema hmm. um it it 
yeah, it's phenomenal. So it is one of the only Ingmar Bergman movies though that I have not like rewatched hmm. since I was first like just getting into cinema. Hmm. So I will be curious to actually rewatch it for the first time in like a decade. Okay. So well, and I will be watching it for the first time as was the case the last time we watched yeah. an Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah. So uh, uh, looking forward to it uh, from my perspective. Max von Sydow plays the main, plays the knight. Really? I mean, that's where he got his start was in Ingmar Bergman movies back okay. in Sweden before he came across the seas and whatnot. But this is one of his, if not his most now iconic. Now he's known for being in Star Wars yeah. and... Literally. Star, uh, I was going to say Star Wars and Martin Scorsese. So there you go. Friend of the show, uh, Sarah from Minnesota. Ingmar Bergman's probably her favorite director as well. And... And that's one of our biggest bonds is over mm-hmm. him. But uh, her fiance, Andy, is a great, uh, and bless his heart, but it's a great litmus test of what I think most people think of Max von Sydow these days, which is I think we were, we were watching a movie with him, mm-hmm. uh, a Bergman movie. Uh, and randomly we mentioned who he was in the movie because he asked, and he goes, the guy from Star Wars? And I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just have to say it. Mm-hmm. It's not technically wrong. I was gonna say. I mean, he's he's. I mean, he's only in the movie for about forty. I know. Seconds. That's why I'm like surprised that it's actually caught on as like the guy from Star Wars. I'm like, what? Yeah. Anyway, well, he was in. Uh, oh, he he got an Oscar nomination like ten years ago for something. I don't remember what it was, but he's he's been more in films in the last. 15 years or so in, in U.S. cinema. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's been in U.S. cinema for a while now, like in like Woody Allen movies yeah. and such. Um, I think he was very randomly in that uh, incredibly loud and extremely close or whatever movie. I feel like he got an Oscar nomination for that. I feel like that's maybe what, you're, that what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so it may have been that. I know he got a lot of press for that movie mm-hmm. because that was a... I guess a movie that people cared about back then, and yet I've never heard of anyone talk about it since. So. No, it's an Oscar Beatty movie. So that's what's coming up, and looking forward to it, and looking forward to uh, getting back with you, uh, our very loved listeners out there. Aww. Yeah. So from Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman, as always, thank you very much for listening to us here at Film Dang. Catch up with you next time. Uh-huh.